Our gospel lesson today comes from Luke's gospel, from the 16th chapter beginning with the first verse, and you can find this in your pew Bibles. And I didn't write down the page number. On page 78, 79. There we go. Friends, let us listen for the word of God. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned them and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? And he answered, a hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it fifty. Then he asked another, and how much do you owe? And he replied, a hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and make it eighty. As his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is Faithful also in much. And whoever is dishonest in a very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Gracious God, send your spirit into the quietness of this hour. Open our hearts and our minds and our lives to the word that you will speak to us today. Amen. So Luke's gospel takes most of the parable and miracle stories and smooshes them together and places them in this extended section in the middle of the gospel. 
So we would not be surprised to find that this story follows the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin and the parable of the prodigal son. Now most of these parables we have kind of a handle on. We can find our place in them and can tease out the outlines of that godly economy that Jesus calls the kingdom of God. But this parable... Well, let me share the response of one of my favorite commentators. Jill Duffield from the Presbyterian Outlook is complaining a little about Luke's puzzling money talk and asks, could you not confuse manners with this odd parable that seems to commend cheating? What the what is going on? What the what? Now, the parable is pretty simple at the beginning, You have a certain rich man, and that certain rich man has a manager. So our main characters are lined up, and nothing seems too odd. Our manager, the oikonomos, was the steward of his master's property. He was probably a freed slave, and he held a position of great trust. It would have been his responsibility to take care of the household accounts, to see that the servants were fairly paid, and to ensure that the minor children received adequate support. Just think of him as the chief financial officer for some kind of wealthy extended family. So word comes to this rich man that his steward is squandering his property. I love that word, squandering. We've only made it to the second half of the first sentence, and we have already hit conflicted interpretational waters. Because the Greek word for squander means to scatter or to waste or disperse with the wind. It is what the prodigal son did with all of his inheritance in that foreign country. And lots of ink has been spilled. Lots of ink over the manager's criminal intent or his lack of it? Was he lining his own pockets with his master's money? Or was he just a poor manager who had trouble keeping the books? Was he too generous with the household? Or did he throw good money after bad investments? For some, he is as conniving as Frank Underwood. And for others, he is as hapless as Barney Fife. We will never know. All we know is that the boss hears rumors about problems and the manager got a pink slip. Only one more thing was required. The rich man wants to see the books. Now, I'm kind of amazed at this nameless manager's honest self-assessment. It is just what any career coach would have you do when they're counseling you about a job transition. With brutal clarity, he announces, I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. And we had to take his word for it that these are his realistic job choices in his unemployment. Now, I don't know where the parable got its name, but in it, the manager is often called a dishonest manager or an unjust manager. 
but it seems to me to be a stroke of calculated genius, of shrewdness, when he cooks the books to create his own golden parachute. He reduces the debts that are owed to the estate, 20%, 50%, and he does it in person, one by one, inviting the debtors themselves to rewrite their own bills. Talk about customer service. He invests his last days as a manager, culting cultivating relationships that will give him a future. The kicker is this. The master discovers this, and he doesn't prosecute the manager. He praises him instead. And it seems like Jesus does too, because he tells the disciples, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it's gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. What the what? Indeed. Now, by its very oddness, this parable seems to have meaning that's deeper than its simple premise, but that meaning has been elusive for even the most theologically and historically educated commentators, and I can tell you that freely because that's pretty much the first statement in every one of the commentaries I read this week. So today, we are left to wrestle with the questions. Now, Stanley Hauerwas talks about how preachers will find ways to make this parable die of a thousand qualifications. And he points out that Christians spend our time interpreting that commendation of the dishonest steward and forget, forget that Jesus is making a claim about our money. And now I'm going to go to meddling. I grew up bi-theological, if you will. I was the child of a, of a progressive Presbyterian church and a student at a conservative Southern Baptist school. At school, I actually once heard a sermon named Money, the Root of All Evil. But in my home congregation, I heard the passage as it begins, the love of money is the root of all evil. I learned that faithfulness and money meant keeping money in its proper perspective and in its proper place. I was, in the words of Jesus, to serve God and not wealth, to trust in God and not money, and it was all about maintaining the right attitudes about the resources that I had. And you can wave your hands if any of you have heard this sermon. No one? But Hauerwas notes that this parable doesn't fit that easy interpretation. He writes, Jesus does not suggest that the problem is the attitude we take towards God or wealth. Rather, he ta talks to us quite frankly and tells us that if we have money, we are in trouble when it comes to getting into the kingdom of heaven. And why might that be? When I was growing up, I made most of my spending money by mowing lawns and cleaning houses. It was strictly a friends and family and cash affair. So it didn't register as a real job. But I'll never forget the first real paycheck that I got from Casual Corner. It was made all the more real because of the income tax withholding taken out of it. 
and the size of that corporate check. It was a moment of real pride for me. It was honest pay for honest work, and I felt like it was money that I deserved. After all, I had spent the heat wave of July 1980 in Houston selling wool suits and fur coats to mall patrons 36 hours a week. Honest money. Yet Howard Wass points out that I, that we, had the good luck to be born into good homes that had the habits that would make us success in the kind of economic world in which we find ourselves. But we have to acknowledge that the luck of our birth is based, of course, on the fact that our wealth is the result of dishonest appropriation, a statement that he tempers most capitalists are not themselves unjust, but rather they simply inherit the practices of injustice. Now our nightly news and our morning papers show us that we as a nation are still dealing with the legacy of racism, our nation's original sin. We can remember that Native Americans were dispossessed from this land by deceit and by force, and that Africans were enslaved to ensure our nation's economic gain. And we are heirs to that legacy of our founding. And we cannot choose to live outside of that brokenness. We are caught up in the unjust systems of this country and of this world. We know that with less than 5% of the world's population, the United States uses almost 25% of the world's fossil fuel resources. And as a nation, we throw out 200,000 tons. Let me say a number again. 200,000 tons of edible food every day. In our lifetimes, most Americans will generate 52 tons of garbage. And meanwhile, more than 2.8 million people around the globe will live on less than $2 a day. It is heartbreaking to confess that we are a people who flourish because others do not. So we might take to heart that we share a common bond with the shrewd manager, that the dollars in our pockets and our portfolios have all the earmarks of dishonest wealth. So how do we as a people of faith hear that word? Is there no hope? And if there isn't, why are we here? Where do we find the good news? Frederick Beekerner once wrote that the gospel is bad news before it is good news. It is, he says, the reminder that we are sinners, eight parts chicken, phony and slob. But it is also the news that we are loved anyway cherished, forgiven, bleeding to be sure, but also bled for. The news is that the gospel gives us hope that extraordinary things can happen. Jesus tells his disciples and he tells us that we can still be faithful with wealth that is not justly ours. 
which is all of it. He commends us to use our money, that dishonest wealth, to seek friendship with those who are near to the kingdom of God. And in Jesus' own words, those people are the poor and the hungry, those who mourn and who are persecuted, and those who are our enemies. We are to seek friendship, which is very different from the actions of that shrewd steward. Charles Cusar writes, instead of using money to create a group that owes us favors, we make friends with our money. Friendship that involves commonality and equality, but not indebtedness. We make friends by relieving the inequities and building common ground. And in doing so, we come to glimpse the inner workings of God's kingdom. It is not our generosity that saves us, but the generosity of the God we are called to imitate. Because our God is the one who seeks us when we are lost, who sends the Son to find the lost sheep and to claim our hearts and bring us back into God's fold. This is the Father who does not condemn the prodigal son, but when the son returns, rushes out to restore him to the family. This is the manager who praises his this is the rich man who praises his manager's initiative rather than handing him over for prosecution. This is the God of forgiveness and reconciliation, of justice and of peace. Howard Wass writes, God is a generous God who offers us forgiveness of our sins, sins that are all the more powerful because we cannot will our way out of them. We are caught, but God has freed us from our caughtness through Jesus Christ. We are freed. We are forgiven. And the true riches that come to us are gifts of God's generosity and God's grace, forgiveness and reconciliation with God and with one another. This week I had a word girl moment. And if you don't know who that is, talk with Becky. Differences in Bible translations led me deep into the Greek lexicon to look more into what it meant to be a manager, a steward, an oikonomos. That's the Greek word. Steward does it sort of justice, but Thayer's lexicon goes further. Today, we dedicated our Sunday school teachers and our youth advisors. And Thayer's lexicon would tell us that like the apostles and all Christian teachers, they are now stewards of the mysteries of God. And if you see them after this service, be sure to tell them that as we all thank them and hold them in prayer because they are sharing the rich treasure of God's grace with our children and youth. Further still, Thayer's notes that we, all of us, become good stewards of the manifold grace of God when we seek to share what has been entrusted to us 
to promote the common good. So we use our money to help the poor and to feed the hungry. We use our compassion to comfort those who mourn. We lift our voices in protest when there is persecution and oppression. And we seek to wage peace with our enemies. And we do this even as we come to terms with our own complicity in the brokenness and injustice that surrounds us. We do this even as we pray for God's kingdom to come. We do this as stewards of the gospel, through which and in which extraordinary things unfold. Amen.